Welcome to In the Days of Noor with me, Noor, where we talk about Islamic-related topics and social issues. So today we're going to be diving into books, talking about books and reading and hopefully getting you interested in a few new books and maybe putting some things on your book list. Joining us, we have Muhammad Jilan, um, Sidi Muhammad Jilan. He has a very popular blog called Andalus on AndalusOnline.org. He's also a speaker. He has a book club. Um, inshallah, he can tell us a bit more about himself. He also has a really great podcast that um, probably is one of the first Muslim podcasts that I got into. So I really, really suggest that you all um, check that out. Assalamu alaikum, Sidi Muhammad Jilan. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Again, thank you for... Thanks for having me. Alhamdulillah, thank you again for being on. Um, as I mentioned, your podcast is one of the first kind of Muslim podcasts that I got into. When did you start your podcast? Oh, man. Uh, it's been at least a couple of years now. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a pseudo attempt maybe four or five years ago, um, and I it just I never got into it. And a couple mm. of years back, I just decided to get more. Um, I got some help in starting it, and okay. yeah, I just got to go. Yeah, okay. So you started it. Yeah, why do I feel like 2014 sticks out? I'm not completely sure. But a couple I'm years. Actually, I'm just gonna hmm. check now because okay, <laughs> yeah. I don't. 2016. The first podcast 16, that I put okay. out was March 14th, 2016. Okay. But there was 2014. There was the like a little kind of a, a false start, I guess, if you will. Was that um, the one on technology? I, no, 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 okay. no. The one on technology is um, uh, is uh, that was after I already. That was like the ninth episode. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, but um, 2014, there was kind of an attempt of trying to get something going, and I, mm-hmm. I initially put out a couple of the episodes or a couple of lessons from Aqidah class that I taught. Okay. But okay. I never really got going with that um, too seriously until back in 2016, just for whatever reason. I don't remember the exact impetus for it, mm-hmm. but uh, alhamdulillah, I just um, felt the urge to do it, and just uh, it's been going on ever since. Alhamdulillah. And it's simply Muhammad Jilan podcast, right? Yeah, so yeah. you just put in the last name is G-H-I-L-A-N and um, yeah, just put in my name on iTunes or Stitcher or mm-hmm. um, yeah, the various podcast platforms, you can find it there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. yeah. Alhamdulillah. I highly, highly suggest it. So, and then your blog, AndalusOnline.org. Um, when was that started? was the blog started? I think that was actually around, um, that was around the same time that I started getting it going. Um, mm-hmm, I want to okay. say probably around um, September 2000, what is it, 2016 is when I got that launch. Before that, I had MohammedLilan.com, uh, and that was uh-huh, just a, yeah, a static yeah, that was a static blog, and then I moved a bunch of the stuff, and because I wanted to expand a little bit and add more things to the mm-hmm. website, so I got a a whole thing with endlessonline.org, mm-hmm. and that's when I started to get the podcast incorporated. Just a little bit more uh, about you. So clearly, you have an Islamic studies background. 
did you study in a particular place and when did you get started um, studying Islam? Um, the start of the study itself or the trigger for all of this was, um, um, I think it's not that uncommon. It started with 2007. I attended um, the Revival of the Islamic Spirit Conference in Toronto okay. and um, the Knowledge Retreat afterwards. And that was my first kind of direct exposure to sitting with scholars and, and mm. kind of getting a sense of what it means to sit with people who studied with people. And so I started kind of pursuing that through there. And then when I got back into my city, uh, Victoria, um, I mm. got connected with um, uh, a teacher there who studied uh, in Mauritania. Mm -hmm. And um, that's that remains my kind of primary teacher. He's the one that I always go back to for any counsels yeah. or advice or check-in. Um, uh, beyond that, I've just been traveling back and forth. I went to Egypt for a, for a summer intensive, mm -hmm. um, spent time in Saudi Arabia as well, in Jeddah. Mm -hmm. uh, basically what I do with my travel, because I have, I'm, I'm a full-time, I've been a full-time student um, at the universities since 2007. Mm -hmm. between pursuing a bachelor's and then a PhD and then now doing wow, medical school. So mm -hmm. I take advantage of um, these summer breaks or extended breaks that I have and I basically make a, a deliberate choice of going to a place if there happens to be a teacher there or happens to be some sort of a retreat. I'll go and I'll sit down and I will get what I need from it. So mm -hmm. for example, uh, when I went to um, Egypt, I spent time doing tafsir there at Al-Azhar in the summertime. When I went to Saudi Arabia, I made a, uh, a deliberate um, thing with uh, doing Arabic and uh, Balagha. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what I've been doing ever since 2007 uh, for, these, um, for the travel-wise. Mm -hmm. But for kind of a consistent thing where I sit down with somebody, that's been in Canada with my teacher there. Okay. And that was actually, um, and I mentioned this before in different um, episodes, so I apologize to those who might have heard this mm -hmm. before, but for those who haven't, it was actually Imam Zaid who stopped me from going to Mauritania full time. Mm, um, because okay. I had, um, yeah, I had I had an acceptance to the PhD program for neuroscience at the University of Victoria. Mm -hmm. And um, I was debating, you know, I just finished my bachelor's at the time and I did well. And I asked Imam Zaid whether, you know, I'd, I'd really like to go and just do Sharia full time kind of a thing. And mm -hmm. what he said to me at the time was, and that was back in 2009, he said, um, the Sharia is not a thing that you go and do for a, a short period of time. It's not a degree mm. program. It's not a uh, some sort of certificate. Sharia oh, is something funny. you do for a lifetime, and you do it. And as long as you do it with teachers, that's really all you need. You don't need the validation mm. of a piece of paper. Wow, um, but in the in this day and age, we need to have Muslims who are who have po both legs in uh, one leg in each field, kind of a thing. And mm. and we are lacking. And having Muslims who do these secular sciences at the uh, higher levels. Mm -hmm. So if you if Allah opened the door for you to do a PhD in neuroscience, which is kind of a unique thing, mm -hmm. um, and it's an up and coming thing, and it's uh, to be called a neuroscientist is not a small feat. Yeah. Um, and you should go through that door. Don't close doors that Allah opened for you just mm -hmm. out of because that would be a type of a hidden. Um, nafsani desire it's a hidden egotistical desire mm, you're actually funny. running away from a challenge uh, that's presented to you and you're trying to hang it on the i want to go pursue sharia mm -hmm. so so panel when i went back um just continued my studies with my teacher and um uh, imam zaid's advice actually uh, bore a lot of fruit um, i find a lot more blessing in my time 
and I got a lot further. Um, and that was because he even told me, he said he knows people that went to Syria, spent seven mm -hmm. years there, came back, and um, they're not any further ahead than someone who stayed locally. Hmm. The reason for it was because closed doors against um, themselves when they were in the States or in Canada. And they went to Syria, but they didn't have the funds. That door was never open for them. So they ended up having to work in the daytime, trying yeah, to catch up on the studies at night, but they were tired to retain anything. And so they actually didn't benefit as much as they could have had they stayed locally. Wow. And the Sunnah, generally speaking, is you need to exhaust your local resources before you go off to some place uh, seeking something else. Mm -hmm. And it seems that a lot of people that have been traveling um, not to cast aspersions onto them or anything, but mm -hmm. there's kind of this attractive, like, oh, I went and I studied in this country or in that yeah. country, and there is an allure to it. There's a type of legitimacy that people draw from, oh, well, where did you go study? That mm -hmm. person went to Yemen, that person went to Mauritania, and you mm -hmm. just happened to stay in Canada. Yeah. And sometimes I do get that from time to time from people. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it seems to be a knock that you didn't go and spend extended periods of time in one of these countries. Uh, but at the end of the day, the knowledge should speak for itself. Mm -hmm. If you studied with someone who's actually uh, got a pedigree and they have a chain of transmission, um, it shouldn't really matter where you are. Um, and that's something that I learned later on. And alhamdulillah, I, I, I had the enough um, wherewithal and the presence of mind to know that just listen to Imam Zaid. Don't go pursuing something that mm -hmm. you um, your own egotistical things. So that's really it. That's... Um, uh, my Islamic studies kind of, I got all my basics and uh, went up uh, to, a, I guess you'd call it intermediate level mm -hmm. of study in the Madhiki school because I did Risalat ibn Abi Zaid. Mm -hmm. And um, I was satisfied with that level of fiqh. And I still check from time to time with my teacher. Mm -hmm. um, still waiting to start Mukhtasar Khalil, but um, it, fiqh is not really, um, like the details of fiqh are not really my specific interests. I'm more interested okay. in theological issues. Okay. So Aqidah is really where I find my heart's calling. Um, but yeah, that's, um, and then, yeah, and the other thing that I mentioned already is just with my secular, so-called secular studies, and that continues to this day. Mm -hmm. MashaAllah, alhamdulillah, I'm, I'm glad I asked, mashaAllah, and that, I think that's really beneficial for listeners also, and hopefully we can return back to that a little bit just in terms of advice and seeking knowledge, but I think that was concise in itself. So we we do want to move into sort of the books and just um, get into reading at first. And as you know, as we all know, the Prophet ﷺ, the first thing he was told by Angel Gabriel was to read or, or it's sometimes translated as recite. Is there a significance in that? Do you think there's some kind of significance in those being the first words for the prophet to receive it's interesting because the um the arabian culture and society by and large was not a a, a literate society it was an oral society um mm -hmm. very few people you could count them on the hand kind of a thing who had the ability to read um and so th the thing about reading there's a book it was on the book list last year for the Endos book club walter mm -hmm. j ung um, when you are stuck in an oral tradition, an oral society, uh, because there is, there is kind of limitation to the human capacity for memory um, mm -hmm. and the importance for re, uh, uh, reproducing the content, you actually um, end up being stuck in a cycle. You never, you, you're not able to progress forward. And you see that in oral societies. 
Hmm. Uh, there's a lot of benefit to being in an oral society, but there's also drawbacks. And the drawback is that you can literally stay for a thousand years in the same condition. Hmm. Uh, because the focus is just reproduce whatever it is that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't really build on knowledge per se. Because for you to build on knowledge, you need to free your mind from the cognitive load of having to re- 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 uh, reproduce whatever you memorized. So there's an important summarization, but there's also an importance to reading because reading allows you to kind of exit from that, free yourself from that, the shackles of having to continuously reproduce everything. And now you can add to knowledge because now you have an external device, the book becoming an external device where you can store information there and come back to it. So it's, it's quite significant. You know, the, every society has their kind of foundational texts that they um, go back to. And the Arabs, they really didn't have anything. It was just the Mu'allaqat al-Sab'a, the pre-Islamic poetry mm-hmm. that they had. And they would just compete in that kind of realm. But it wasn't anything that would add to knowledge. And the Qur'an, with the advent of the Qur'an and the revelation of it and, and, and the compilation of it, and the kind of trigger that it lit a fire inside the community, the Muslims, and the speed by which they managed to transform themselves from Bedouins who are just, you know, uh, and, and, and merchants who are just in the desert or farmers in Medina, um, just concerned with uh, reducing uh, dates mm-hmm. uh, from their trees, um, the studying the world and uh, producing new forms of knowledge so that they can uh, facilitate their acts of worship even. Because a lot of what we uh, see in the development of the Islamic sciences had a direct relation with acts of worship. For example, you have algebra that had a direct relationship with the calculation of inheritance and the mm. merchant um, uh, transactions in the market for, uh, and that had to obey certain things with Islamic law. Uh, you also have the developments of astronomy that had a direct relationship with trying to figure out we need to know to establish the Qibla property properly. We also need to establish our uh, uh, months uh, so that we can organize society because you have to have some sort of an organization system uh, for society to prosper and flourish. So a lot of our sciences had to do with that, even our theological um, debates and things from the start. That developed out of engagement with the external world, coming in and trying to argue, well, why do you think you're right and we're wrong? And so you had Muslim scholars kind of delving into various fields of knowledge. And all of that was born out of writing and reading, um, which was the very first command that was revealed, mm-hmm. recite or read. And the Prophet is interesting that uh, in both variants of the meaning, if you translate it, either recite or read, iqra, um, he saw Wasallam. Uh, despite of having a prodigious memory and, and eloquent speech and all of that, he saw Sallam was never able to recite poetry. Mm-hmm. Every time he would recite poetry, he would make mistakes. Um, and that is established in the Sunnah. Um, and that wasn't, it's just subhanAllah, like Allah just did not right. allow him to be able to produce poetry. He can produce Quran, but he can't produce poetry. Mm-hmm. So he said, I'm not a reciter, I can't do poetry. Or if it was meaning to read, I don't read because he saw mm-hmm. was not a lettered man. So for for an unlettered man to give rise to an ummah of read, um, mm-hmm. where we had massive libraries that what the Mongols did in Baghdad to cross the river, because um, they wanted to cross the Euphrates River, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. Um, they just took the books from the library. 
and they just and it had so much content they had so many books that they were able to create kind of a false bridge for the horses (laughs) and the people to cross Um, that's how much that's how much intellectual knowledge that the muslims uh, had back then so yeah there's a direct relationship between the rise of our civilization and the introduction of this revelation of, of what you said so i really appreciate that um, for your, in your own personal life, did you grow up reading? Was, was that your thing or was it something you came into later on in adulthood? Um, it's, uh, subhanAllah, it's always been my thing. Um, hmm. I've always been, it's always been something around in my house. Um, the first book that I've ever read, which is kind of funny that I was just reflecting on this, um, for another thing, um, a while back. The very first book I read after going through, you know, obviously the Quran and all that when I was young, the very first non-Islamic book that I've ever read was Uncle Tom's Cabin. Oh, really? Um, Interesting. Yeah, translated into Arabic because, and that was because my mother, um, she thought that that was an important book for me to read. Um, Wow. Despite us not, not having been in Canada or even having any thoughts about ever coming to North America. So... That was the very first book I read, and I've just been fascinated by reading. Uh, fascinated by reading ever since I was young. Um, when I was ten, I read um, Tariq al-Tabari, um, which is a multi-volume text. One of the <laughs> first. It's the first uh, uh, magnum opus on Islamic history. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just uh, it's been a thing that I've been. I've read. Alhamdulillah, when I was young, got through um, uh, Tafsir ibn Kathir. Um, also just reading it's just it's been a thing and I used to um, when we go to the libraries I, I, I pick up I remember picking up a, a science encyclopedia mm. I don't know I think I was eight years old or something and um, uh, it was in Arabic and uh, I would take it with me to school and the way that the schools uh, we had one PE class per week in um, in the school in Saudi Arabia and um, that PE class it wasn't even it was just soccer people just played soccer because I was a sport mm-hmm. and I never liked soccer back then mm-hmm. and one of the things that you had to do was come to school with your because they didn't have locker rooms there so you just come to school that day with your uh, gym clothes and um, I deliberately wouldn't okay. and if you didn't have your gym clothes on then they would make you sit out and just uh, wait for the period and I did that I would bring my encyclopedia and I would sit on the sidelines and I'd just read. Your encyclopedia, um, so always, you said? Yeah, I would just bring oh, a, wow. a science encyclopedia along with me. I'd just read this encyclopedia. And I would just go into this realm of imagination. Like every time I've read anything, I'd just go into this whole other dimension. Um, just imagining how mm-hmm. things were if it was a history text or imagining how things could be if it's a, a scientific text. Um, and yeah, so it's just, it's been something that I've been kind of, uh, ever since I was young, I was drawn to. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, alhamdulillah, it's been, it's been great. It's been enriching. MashaAllah, that, that's really amazing. Um, so I wanted to ask you, and this, I'm an English teacher now in high school, and I was having a conversation with one of the kids about video games. I didn't grow up playing video games, so I'm I'm so like out of the loop in that world. Yeah. But it was interesting the way he was explaining it, and he was saying, you know, it's so much better than books because you have choices about you know different paths you can take. It's like a fiction novel, but in what with twenty different paths, and you know, just going on and on about video games. And it's interesting because he he made a good case for video. I'm sure there's a lot of 
negative things about video games, but he certainly made a good case for them, at least as opposed to um, fiction books. Um, what would you say in our time, especially if you're talking to a younger person, was the case for books with so many other forms of entertainment and even information available? We live in an image-based culture now, and mm -hmm. video games are just a manifestation of that. And the problem with image-based culture is despite the illusion that they give you, you know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words, mm -hmm. and it gives you this idea that you can enter into the realm of imagination and it expands your horizons. Mm -hmm. It actually is the opposite way around. Once I present you with an image, I've now constricted your ability to imagine because I'm telling mm -hmm. you this is the image that you need to have in your mind. Whereas if I give you a book and it's a fiction book and you read it, when you read a fish, I hate it. I don't. If I read a book and they make a movie about it, I don't <laughs> go watch a movie. Um, because when I've done that, it was absolutely disappointing every time. Because what happens with, and this is actually a good analogy or a good example to use in this argument. Mm. Every time you read a book, you watch the movie, you're disappointed. Why is that? Well, when you read the book, you had an image in your mind. You imagined how the events unfolded in the book. You imagined the characters, you constructed them in your mind's eye the way that you thought that they would look like. But then when you go watch a movie, they're now presenting you with this is how you need to imagine this, set, this scene to be. Mm -hmm. This is how this actor looks like, right. as opposed to how you imagine the actor look like in your mind. And so in a way, it's actually disempowering. Let's just mm -hmm. eliminate one aspect of the description of the character, race. Mm -hmm. And I just describe the character as... If it's a male character, it's a big, muscular, dominating, strong, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Well, a black kid is going to imagine this character as a black man. Mm -hmm. And a white kid is going to imagine as a white man. And an Asian kid can imagine, depending on the language as well, right. that this thing is being constructed in. Right. So now you're freeing people to imagine the way that they, and they can construct now. They can create their own reality out of it. And they can enrich their own, their own imagination the way that they think it should work. They're now able to think outside of the box, but once you give them an image, mm -hmm. you've boxed them in, and you're saying, this is what a hero looks like. Right. It's a white man who's about 6'3", and he looks like this, and his dimensions are like that. And mm -hmm. beauty is this white woman who's blonde, who's this, whatever the case may be, mm -hmm. however the culture constructs him to be. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you could have multiple paths, and you, it's like a fiction thing, but the other thing about it is... You're, you're actively engaged in the video game for choosing these things as opposed to um, being um, uh, someone who's uh, 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 having to anticipate how the story is going to unfold. Mm. There's a difference between the two. Mm -hmm. So from an imagination perspective, a culture that reads is actually a much more creative culture than a culture that just looks at images. In a book, there's a lot that you can work with in your imagination and imagining um, I guess how the characters look and maybe reflecting and asking questions of the book. So yeah, that, that's pretty fascinating. I guess there's less of a, what can we say? There's sort of less of a construction. There's more that's left to the imagination. So, uh, you know, I think that's really good because we're going to talk about, inshallah, te Technopoly in particular in a few minutes. But, um, I think there is a, we should be cautious as whatever the slightly older generation and sort of just being against whatever the new technology is, we do have to make an actual case for it or it just seems like we're stuck in the past, can't get with the new thing um, if we don't have a real case there. So 
Um, well, I that happens with every that happens mm-hmm. with every generation. Every generation yeah. trashes on the new generation's technologies and things that they came up with, and they think that this is not, not good for you. There is a positive and a negative to everything. Mm-hmm. Um, the question is, um, and wisdom is really to identify like when can wisdom is to do the right thing in the right time and the right context to the right degree. So I'm not saying don't play video games, mm-hmm. for example. I know that just the act of playing video games improves dexterity. Mm-hmm. Um, surgeons, there are some studies showing surgeons who play video games are actually better um, with their hand techniques than wow. surgeons who do not. Um, their ability to think fast on their feet and respond in real time and things are better. So mm-hmm. there's a benefit to playing video games. The question is, um, or the problem becomes when you make video games your life. And right. that's all you do. And then right. you take books out of the equation completely. Yeah. And you ask somebody, when was the last book that you read? <laughs> and they can't even think when because it's been so long before. Yeah. Um, and people ask me all the time, oh, uh, mashallah, you can uh, speak readily. You think fast on your feet. How are you able to give speeches like this? Like, How are you able to write? Like, I read. That's mm-hmm. all you got to do. It's um, There's a lot of uh, groundwork that you do through reading that either directly or indirectly contributes to your ability to speak clearly, to improve your rhetoric, to improve your writing, to improve your speech. Um, reading has uh, and improves your imagination. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of benefits to reading, and it's sad to see kids just opt out from reading and just go, I'm just going to do video games all the time. Yeah. I mean, uh, all you have to ask is, what have you learned that can, that has practical Right. Um, ability to improve your current situation or improve your intellectual aptitude. Um, I don't see video games being um, uh, that po- that strong in that. Uh, some people are actually genuinely they um, they retain more and they're just better with uh, with audio. So and especially for those who don't have the time to sit down and read, mm-hmm. by all means go ahead and, and take that up. Um, but when it comes to um, reading. Uh, uh, ebooks versus hard copied books on the one hand i am old school i do prefer the hard copies even though i have multiple soft copies of things um i I prefer to have the hard copy because i like to write on the margins and i like the this there's actually a Mm, a, what's the term here there's a physical kind of relationship that you have um with the book itself the smell uh, Mm -hmm. tactile relationship that, all of that actually influences your brain function. So when you're reading, mm-hmm. you create stronger, and this has been shown through, through research. People who read ebooks versus reading um, a hard copy book, mm-hmm. a hard copy book, you will retain more of it. You will have uh, clearer memories of it mm-hmm. uh, versus an ebook. And we also know okay. through eye tracking, you can see how people read. When you read on a screen, you read what, it's call, uh, what is called an F-shaped pattern. Mm-hmm. And an F-shaped pattern is you read the first couple of lines in full, and then you start to read less and less as you go down the page um, uh, from each line. Mm-hmm. And the pattern that shapes looks like an F, the letter mm-hmm. F, capital F. Right. So we know that reading through a, on a screen is not as um, uh, – you just don't read as much of it, and you don't retain as much of it. Mm-hmm. So for me, ebooks. I have a Kindle. I have my iPad. These are for convenience okay. when I travel. Okay. So if I'm traveling, mm-hmm. I don't want to carry a lot of books with me, and it's just a lot of weight. Um, so I just carry my my ebooks. Otherwise, at home, I there's a lot of value to having these hard copies so that you can actually write in them and take notes mm-hmm. in them and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And secondly, 
when you have uh, this is another thing that's um, an intangible kind of thing that people don't pay attention to when you have a lot of books in your library and anybody that has most people that have lots of uh, like filled libraries in their homes mm -hmm. will attest to this we haven't read every single book in this library on the margins and I like the this the, there is actually a, mm, a yeah. what's the term here there's a physical kind of relationship that you have um, with the book itself the smell uh, mm -hmm. tactile relationship that all of that actually influences your brain function so when you're reading mm -hmm. you create stronger and this has been shown through, through research people who read ebooks versus reading um, a hard copy book mm -hmm. a hard copy book you will retain more of it you will have uh, clearer memories of it mm -hmm. uh, versus an ebook and we also know if through eye tracking you can see how people read when you read on a screen, you read what it's called, uh, what is called an F-shaped pattern, mm -hmm. and an F-shaped pattern is you read the first couple of lines in full, and then you start to read less and less as you go down the page um, uh, from each line, mm -hmm. and the pattern that shapes looks like an F, the letter mm -hmm. F, capital F. Right. So we know that reading through a, on a screen is not as um, uh, it's, it's, you just don't read as much of it and you don't retain as much of it. Mm -hmm. So for me, ebooks, I have a Kindle, I have my iPad. These are for convenience okay. when I travel. Okay. So if I'm traveling, mm -hmm. I don't want to carry a lot of books with me and it's just a lot of weight. Um, so I just carry my, my ebooks. Otherwise, at home, I, there's a lot of value to having these hard copies so that you can actually write in them and take notes mm -hmm. in them and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And secondly, when you have, uh, this is another thing that's um, an intangible kind of thing that people don't pay attention to. When you have a lot of books in your library, and anybody that has, most people that have lots of uh, like filled libraries in their homes mm -hmm. will attest to this. We haven't read every single book in this library. Mm -hmm. A lot of times you go and you buy books and you're like, you have the intention of reading them, but you know, I have some books in my library on my shelves that they're still to read type of books. Mm -hmm. What this actually does is it serves as a constant reminder in the background that you don't know everything hmm, that there's a lot more out there uh -huh. and that, yeah it's it's a physical reminder that you your knowledge is little hmm. and so it actually is a humbling experience yeah. to look at a library that has a lot of books versus this virtual iCloud yeah it's a lot of files but they don't have a, a an immediate salience or presence in your face right. that you don't know everything so you're I I think you would be less likely to fall into hubristic I know everything like the Dunning-Kruger kind of overestimation of your knowledge because every time mm -hmm. you think you know stuff, just look at your library, look at your bookshelf mm -hmm. and reflect on all of the texts that you haven't read yet. That is, all of that is knowledge you haven't um, attained to this point. So mm -hmm. it's a humbling thing at the same time to mm -hmm. have physical copies. Wow, mashallah. That, that's a really great sort of new um, interpretation of that because I think a lot of us when we have all the books on our shelves that we haven't read yet, you kind of feel bad. <laughs> you feel like maybe you wasted money or it's a waste of space. But yeah, that's... Well, mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've had um, some topic come up mm -hmm. and it was a book that I had bought and I hadn't read yet. Mm -hmm. And it was so relieving to go like, oh, alhamdulillah, I have the book. So then I can go immediately and just pick it up and go through the thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I do feel bad. I feel a little guilty. Like, man, I <laughs> need to get through this book. But at the same time, it's also a humbling thing. Like, I haven't gone through these texts yet. So, mm -hmm. you know, take it easy on yourself. You're not that <laughs> smart. You're not that intelligent. You haven't encompassed all of knowledge. 
until you find yourself being silent more. It's kind of like an mm-hmm. external tool to help you just keep quiet mm-hmm. and not speak about everything. Mm-hmm. MashaAllah. So we know that you have a book club before we get into some specific books. Then you have a book club um, called Andalus Book Club. So um, what is the, how do you sort of format the book club? I think it is online. So how does that work? And um, what are the genres that you tend to focus on? So the book club started in 2017. And the initial intention of it was to have a dual thing, to have a forum so that people, we can just have a discussion on this uh, forum between the members and myself Mm -hmm. about certain ideas that the book is proposing. And have at the end of every month a live webinar where I go through the main points and the takeaways from the text itself. And then a live Q&A discussion kind of a thing okay. uh, with the members. That was the initial thing. And it started off well with that. And then slowly but surely, it ended up just becoming the live webinar was the big thing. Um, mm. The forum is still there, but it's not that active. Okay. Um, people just prefer to come to the webinar and just whatever questions they have, we'll just have a direct um, conversation there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how it works right now. I'm, okay. I'm going to try to get the form going again, but I think it's <laughs> to do with the format of the website itself and just the aesthetic. Okay. Uh, but the webinar is really where things happen. Uh, the webinars go for about, on average now, they're about two hour long webinars. Mm. And they're held on either a Saturday or a Sunday, the following weekend after the end of the month where the book is being covered. Mm-hmm. And the specific texts that I deal with uh, have to do with it's really a, a, a reorientation um, of, of the mind. I'm okay. trying to, um, the, the books that I choose are all about uh, increasing self-knowledge. Mm-hmm. So that we want to know for the Muslim community, for example, because that's really the main audience that I'm, I'm working with are right. Muslims. And especially we're talking about college age and young professionals mm-hmm. who are joining this club. And um, they're trying to figure out how to think as a Muslim through the world. Number right. one, you need to figure out the forces that are shaping your thought process and why you're thinking the way that you're thinking right now. Mm-hmm. And then incorporating through that, because every text that I go through, I'm bringing in um, the Quran and Sunnah as a commentary on the text itself. So mm-hmm. where are some of the ideas that the author is bringing relevant for us in light of the Quran and the Sunnah so that we can reformulate the way that we think about us being Muslim in the modern world. So there are books to do with colonization, books to do with the structure and the, and the construction of Islamic law, uh, books to do with uh, scientific thinking and the scientific method, uh, books to do with uh, theology and philosophy as well, and all of it in a way to do it in a, uh, to make it relevant and practical to kind of daily, um, I want to say intellectual kind of and spiritual uh, dilemmas and struggles that we might have. Mm-hmm. So all of it has to do with that. And also a little bit of, uh, and whenever relevant, how it relates to uh, our political positioning Okay. as a Muslim community. Okay, mashallah. That's great. And I think that's really important. It's something I attempt to touch on. But really, which is sort of not having a kind of incongruence as a Muslim in the academic world, whether you're a student or a teacher somehow um, in that world, because I think sometimes what happens is 
we go to school, we're focused on the secular, and then we have the moments where we're focused on being Muslim, I'm going to the Muslim conference, and I'm going to Jummah, and I'm going to dress Muslim and think Muslim for sort of these um, pockets in my life. But then we kind of just turn it all off when we're in that academic setting. And so I think what you're doing is valuable so that when you're reading a, you know, quote unquote, secular book, that you're still keeping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Quran, the Sunnah in mind and are able to think about it as a Muslim and not have to turn off, you know, your Muslim um, self in order to read the book. Um, so I, I don't know if you've ever thought about that, just some of the possible um, sort of incongruence that a Muslim can have in that space. Well, the thing is, um, and this is something I noticed, I have a younger sister and I remember mm. um, kind of tutoring her and helping her when she was going through elementary school in her science classes. Mm -hmm. And I remember going through, one of the things that I like to do, especially with textbooks, mm -hmm. uh, is read the introduction of the textbook, the introduction by the authors, mm -hmm. which is something that most people just ignore. We like to go to the table of contents, read chapter three, chapter seven, these are the <laughs> things relevant for your yeah. exam, just go through that and we're done. Yeah. But in the introduction, you actually, um, oftentimes you'll find the philosophy that drove the writing of the book itself. Mm -hmm. How is the book structured? What kind of thinking that the authors want the students to come out with? Right. So in the science textbook that she had, which was at the time she was in grade five or grade four, um, the implications of the text itself was to get the students, by the time they get out of the class, to start thinking, quote unquote, scientifically. Mm. What they actually were talking about in the introduction, I don't remember the specific phrasing that they used, but the implication of it was to make people think materialistically about mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. And so you're going through an education system since kindergarten all the way until you graduate from high school senior class and then and you've got your your mind now formed to think in a way about the world that excludes god from the equation excludes exactly. the quran yeah. excludes the sunnah but you don't know that because it was all kind of um there is kind of the explicit curriculum objectives mm -hmm. that the student by the time they finish his class they need to be able to do x y and z Right. But then there's the implicit curriculum, which yeah. is the the formation of this person as as they finish this course, how should they become? And everybody that went through any course, they'll tell you, I've become a different person. I've mm -hmm. transformed. And they're talking about the way that they're thinking about things. Right. But for kids, they don't really know because they're still going through that years of formation and you're molding them to think in, in a particular way. Now, after they finish, what, what have they been doing for Muslims specifically? But they go to Jummah every every week, if they do, mm -hmm. um, come from a practicing household. They have Ramadan every year. They have Eid twice a year. Um, they might go to the conference, the Islamic conference here and there, maybe once, maybe twice a year. Right. Um, they might go to a class here and there. A, a scholar comes into town. But you notice that all of these things are not actually interlinked. There's no coherent exactly. mm -hmm. kind of constancy to it. They're just kind of um, scattered, disconnected exposures to mm -hmm. Islam that have no structure to them and oftentimes they go um, against what they've been taught or the way that they're derived and thinking about the world goes against the way that they're being taught to think about the world right so then they go to university they pick on a degree and you know once you're at university 18 years old 19 years old you're now going through this age of 
you know, shabab is like in Arabic, it's shabbat al-nar. It's like the fire has become, uh, you're stoking the fire now. Mm-hmm. And so now they want to do something and they, and they become concerned. They become socially aware. They become socially active. Mm-hmm. But they haven't been really imbibing much of the Islamic tradition of how they're supposed to think about it. Because the way that we've constructed our curricula has not been, um, it, it, it's not going to win against a structured kind of curriculum from the school. Right. So the way that I'm, I've tried to do with this book club is there's no um, outcome for this. I'm not trying to get you, there's no exams, there's no tests, mm-hmm. uh, there's no exercise for you to do. I just want people to read for the sake of reading and to yeah. try to change the way that they think about things and get them to think about, all right, look, how do I come up with this from an Islamic perspective? We well, need to go and do this. Uh, you need to go and study and do these things. Where do I study? Well, find yourself a local scholar. But the thing is, we've been uh, conditioned to think that Islamic scholarship equals fame. If the person is famous, they're a scholar. If they're not famous, they're mm-hmm. a nobody. Yeah. Oftentimes, actually, the opposite way around. Mm. <laughs> Most famous people, they're not really scholars. They just yeah, they talk true. a good game. I'm including myself in this, by the way. We talk <laughs> a good game. But when it comes to actual teachers and scholars, you sit with them, you're like, you know your weight. You know your worth. Yeah. It's not very much, right. if at all. So we try to teach them. I try to get the, the members, like, you need to study with teachers. Once you study, then you will see how you can connect all of these things together. But I think mm-hmm. for us, we're lacking kind of a coherent uh, parallel because I think that's really the way that um, we need to have something now. There has to be something parallel that is not going to be too cumbersome and is not going to increase, uh, is not going to burden the students too much mm-hmm. because they already have to deal with their schooling. Um, so that they can reorient themselves and reshift as opposed to these scattered exposures to Islamic teachings that don't have much of a structure and therefore not much of a coherence. And when push comes to shove, they're always going to default back to the way that they've been taught to think. Right. Yeah. And and just the last thing um, I want to mention on that is that there's also... I feel like we don't have a kind of strong maybe philosophy is how we can put it or just way of thinking so that we don't really even know how to approach certain texts we like we kind of just know okay I think I don't believe that as a Muslim but everything else we don't know what context to put it in one of the things that I'm really grateful for is that when I did go to Jordan, that the Shiyuk that were that were there, uh, mainly Sheikh Noor Hafizullah, that he did like suggest to us books like Empire of Illusion and Amusing Ourselves to Death, and it kind of it made me also not feel so conflicted. Um, I think there's sometimes we can feel conflicted about our American identity and our Muslim identity. And to realize that, oh, there are books that I can read from American scholars that second the thing that the things that Islam is talking about, that agree with what Islam is saying, and that I'm actually not in conflict. I just have to find those people and find that that research. It also just made me feel more whole as a person, I think. Well, it's a couple of things. It's like, um, number one, like the books that Sheikh Nuh recommends are definitely, um, alhamdulillah, I found out after I had put them on my book list that there were books that Sheikh Nuh was recommending. So that was a good um, kind of positive reinforcement. I was like, yeah. all right, I'm, I'm doing something good here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the second thing is, um, 
the Islamic tradition, unfortunately, and this is something that Sheikh Hamza Yusuf talks about, mm. um, uh, has talked about recently, it's an ossified tradition now. Um, it's like Muslims for us, it's like we go through a museum, the mm. Islam museum, and then <laughs> look at the artifacts, right. and we think like, oh, look how amazing this artifact looks. And, but the tradition was always meant to be an organic tradition. Mm. It operates based on principles. Our problem is that we take um, conclusions that have been put together by scholars and as great as the scholars were, as amazing as they were, as erudite and as pious as they were, mm -hmm. we can't ignore and forget that they were still human beings subject to space and time. Mm -hmm. That there were certain realities that they were living through. There were certain forms of knowledge that they had, mm -hmm. certain conclusions that they took for granted that may or may not be valid. Hmm. And I'm not even talking about things that they are unanimously agreed upon. Right. There's also this uh, this illusion of agreement um, in the sense that we have mass literacy, but we also have uh, vested interests. So certain people that have the power to publish certain works, they give the illusion of a generally agreed upon position on something. Mm -hmm. And then they make it into an Islamic issue. Meanwhile, you have teachers now that are sharing things that are in mainstream Sunni Islam. We're not even talking about fringe opinions. Mm -hmm. But just because they, they didn't happen to be things that uh, people have been exposed to, they think that you're now going against the tradition. Yeah. And you're now one of those new for reformist <laughs> type of Muslims. Well, yeah. that is so far from the truth. Um, politically, socially, scientifically, there are a lot of things that we... We've taken Islam and we ignored the principles mm. and we've taken the outcomes, the conclusions that past scholars have used those principles to derive those conclusions rather than let's use the same principles, have our scholars today. And I'm not saying this is for anybody to do. I'm just right. I'm talking about actually people of knowledge mm -hmm. to take those principles and have a bit of intellectual courage. I'm not even asking for anything um, that dramatic mm -hmm. intellectual courage to say, you know what? As great as Imam so-and-so was, was um, this particular thing that he came up with was based on um, some knowledge that he had at the time, which was incomplete because it was based on human endeavors in the scientific realm, for example, mm -hmm. that today we have more knowledge to, and more certainty to say that this was not actually valid and therefore his conclusion cannot be taken for granted and mm -hmm. we should revisit this thing. Um, obviously, there are certain things that are not to be revisited because right. they're explicitly stated in the Quran and the Sunnah and Mutawatira. Uh, and this is not something to be discussed. But there are a lot of things that we can have a conversation about. Mm -hmm. And we should have the intellectual courage as well as just the um, intellectual maturity and and spiritual maturity to go to think this is not threatening to our religion. This is just us being mature individuals and having mm -hmm. a conversation. Yeah. Yeah, mashallah, that's really, really valuable. Um, so we do want to move through, maybe just get your, your take, your summary on a couple of books. These are books that I believe you have read a couple um, through the book club, and I think that there are a couple I put on here that you're going to read this year. So um, these two books I think we can kind of put together, Technopoly and Amusing Ourselves to Death, both by Neil Postman. What is it about? Why is it valuable? Why was it a valuable read to you? And why should people read these two books? I would say Amusing Ourselves to Death is important because um, he basically talks about the um, 
the dominance of entertainment in every discourse mm -hmm. and how that basically um, uh, takes discourse down a path of harm to us generally. So, for example, he's got chapters on politics. He's got chapters there on, I'm trying to just remember because it's been a while since we read this, yeah. but he's got a chapter on politics. He's got a chapter on religion. Mm -hmm. So specifically on those two for us as Muslims, um, using religion as, inter delivering religion through entertainment. Yeah, and education as well. So education becoming enter uh, through entertainment. Mm -hmm. And he basically, um, although he uses the Christian example, you can see a lot of parallels for the Muslim community in it. And one of the chapters that I recall him, one of the comments that he made about religion and amusing ourselves to death, mm -hmm. the medium itself impacts or shapes the discourse, the type of discourse yeah. you're going to have. Yeah. So to give you kind of a, a salient example that Muslims will, uh, listening to this would identify with it immediately. Every time a non-Muslim passes away, mm. there is this whole thing about can you pray for them, can you not pray for them, who's going to hell, who's going to heaven. Mm -hmm. um, and now there's this perennialism kind of arising. Mm. Um, all religions are true as long as you're adhering to the orthodox version. Uh, there are multiple paths to God, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, Neil Postman points out, and this book was written in 1980 or 82 or something like that yeah. and he mentions he says the medium itself is driving this form of discourse because if mm -hmm. you look into the actual traditions regardless of what tradition you're looking at they affirm that there is one truth so uh, a properly adhering <laughs> Christian will mm -hmm. not entertain the notion of being saved outside of Christianity if you do not accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior right. you're going to hell right. ask any Christian this any Catholic this this is their belief this is not a, to offend anybody, and it's mm -hmm. not an insult. They're just saying, if you believe this, you're going to hell. If you don't, if you don't believe this, if you believe it, then you're going to be saved. Well, Muslims have always had that. This was kind of a. This is not an issue to discuss, but because the medium itself does not lend itself to controversy, mm -hmm. entertainment is about making yourself feel good. Right. And by extension, because at the time he was writing it, there was no social media, there was no mm -hmm. internet. So now we have Twitter and we have Facebook. Now look at Facebook mm -hmm. and Twitter. The way that you retweet and you only have an, one option, like something, put a heart on it, mm -hmm. uh, thumbs up. You know, it's, uh, Facebook is toying now a little bit with the different emojis that I'm angry now. I don't like this. But <laughs> there is no clear button that says, I do not like what you say. So it's all about positive reinforcement. Mm -hmm. Everything is about making yourself feel good, feel elated. So religion now being delivered through this medium, you're now as a someone who's uh, going to preach or going to share something you, uh, uh, written on the subject of right and wrong, heaven and hell, saved, not saved. You're now going to have a problem. How are you going to tell people that so-and-so mm -hmm. who happened to be a good person, who happened to be a nice person, because they did not believe in la ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah, now that they might actually end up in... In, in, in the punishment now obviously we can never say anything specific about anybody right. because unless we have revelation for it but at the very least we have kind of clear-cut guidelines that mm -hmm. someone who dies as a non-believer according to Islamic law you do not uh, pray for their safety you do not say rest in peace for example or that may you enter heaven or like it's because their their affair is with Allah now they're with God you don't know right. what their end is but they're with God and legally speaking, you're there to be treated as a non-Muslim. 
that is a controversial thing to say. That is an uncomfortable thing to say mm -hmm. in a medium that is built on positive reinforcement, viral stories of uh, viral feel good stories, and all of a sudden you're coming in and you're raining on everyone's parade. Mm -hmm. Um, you look at someone like Stephen Hawkins when he died, I think it was last year that he died, and there was a big thing about Stephen Hawkins, and I was like, great scientist, this and that. Yeah, great, fine, but he was also a very active proponent of atheism and trying to drive people away from God. And mm. now you want to say, rest in peace, and you want to pray for him. I don't understand mm. this kind of thing, but you understand it when you read Amusing Ourselves stuff. Neil Postman mm. talking about this kind of entertainment, feel good. You cannot have this kind of, and he specifically cites uh, uh, a preacher there, I can't remember, uh, Jimmy Swaggart, I think he was talking about in the chapter, talking about the Jews mm, and whether okay. they'll be saved or not. Okay. And he said, and he points out how he cannot, a fiery sermon all of a sudden hmm. becomes a feel good sermon because it's on television, it's syndicated, right. and you can't have a controversy with that. Um, so that's kind of, uh, and then politics. You look at the uh, politics now and what happens with. Um, the U.S. is kind of a, a gong show right now, just watching it from an outside yeah. perspective. Yeah, it's hilarious, and but it's all entertainment. And, and if you look at, if you get past all of these things, um, Noam Chomsky said a few months ago, it's like Trump is a distraction. Well, yeah. you know what? The whole system is a distraction. Mm -hmm. The whole system is to basically get people to look one way, while the politicians and the legislators uh, pass laws that harm everyone in society. But you're all right. distracted with the tweets and with the latest. Uh, comedic hot takes on whatever and whoever did this and that. Mm -hmm. So it's actually harmful to society to be in this kind of pop culture, entertainment-driven everything. Right. Um, you don't get anywhere with that. The Technopoly, um, the, the general gist of that book is basically talking about the ethical imp um, uh, imperatives that are imposed on society that adopts technology without um, foresight and without mm -hmm. uh, deliberate conscious reflection on what that technology does to you at the spiritual level. Mm -hmm. So, for example, he cites a, a, one example I really liked from it was um, talking about the Benedictine monks who introduced the clock into yes. the church because mm -hmm. they wanted to organize their prayer time. Mm -hmm. And um, he says that initially it was about that, but then when the French uh, king um, and, the, and the industrial revolution came about they used the clock to organize work schedule and that actually became a means to to control and determine when prayer times are going to be mm -hmm. and the thing that they were using as a tool for their own facilitation became a tool for their own oppression mm -hmm. and we see that in the Muslim community now um, technology yeah. has allowed us and people think that this is a new thing I'd recommend reading Caesarean Moon Burst by Sheikh Hamza Yusuf mm -hmm. Uh, to really see through this business of do you, uh, thinking that we are in a unique position historically uh, with regards to determining when Ramadan comes and when Eid comes and all of these things. Mm. What technology has done for us is it has divorced us from the natural world yeah. and we determine everything now based on our iPhone apps, our internet, and we don't actually go out. And if you look at all of our acts of worship, subhanAllah, it's all mm. about reconnecting us with nature, God's creation. Right. And one of the consequences of being disconnected from God's creation and being too connected with our own concoctions through technology mm -hmm. is this facilitation for asking silly questions like, does God exist? Because hmm. you're not looking at God's creation anymore. You're yeah. looking at your own creation. Yeah, that that is, mashallah, it's a really a powerful reminder because that actually that makes me think of your... Um, the episode you had on technology on your podcast 
And that was really, it was so interesting to me because, yeah, here you have Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying again and again to look at his signs. And that prayer is one of the most obvious times that we can reconnect with those signs, but then we choose to have this medium of time and then time really dictating to us when Salah begins instead of, you know, actually going outside and looking for the time. And so it, it's really it's really fascinating. Alhamdulillah, Allah in His mercy allows us to do this. But um, there is a part of defeating the purpose that happens when we sort of use our man-made, man-constructed um, organization of time. So, um, yeah, I, alhamdulillah, both of those books are really, really fascinating. So, um, well, before I go to the next book, I did want to ask you, have you read The Four Arguments for the Elimination of Television? I haven't read that one, and it's okay. sitting on my bookshelf. <laughs> okay. That's a good one uh, to read in this, yeah. you know, on this topic. Have you read The Evil Eye? I'm sorry? The Evil Eye. The Evil Eye, no. By who? Yeah, I think the name is uh, Playfair, is the author's name. Hmm. And that book is, it's a book from, I, I found out about this book from a very old lecture of Sheikh Hamza Yusuf. Uh-huh, wow. Uh, Interesting. And it's a brilliant book. Um, I think okay. Playfair is the is the author's name. I highly recommend that one. But yeah, I have the okay, four arguments inshallah. for the elimination of television, and I need to get through it. <laughs> okay, inshallah. Yeah, you. It's on the same um, topic, but I think it kind of takes things even further, especially mm-hmm. in both in the spiritual realm and then also. Um, not the, but I guess you'd call it the physical realm because he does talk about how it actually affects our eyes as well. Um, so that's a pretty fascinating book. And when I read it back then, I need to read it again, but when I read it back then, it definitely convinced me not to watch television. And I think I stopped for a year or two, but unfortunately old habits came back. But it yeah. is a, a really good book, yeah. Um, I mean, it's... it's um... Like I said, it's uh, it's it's not to completely go against one thing over another. It's mm-hmm. as long as you maintain kind of a, a limit for yourself, and you say right. this is as much as I'm going to do, but I have more important things and more pertinent things to get to. The nature of the human being is it requires these periods of just downtime. Right. You can't be serious all the time. Even the Prophet mm-hmm. said, "Saat and wasaa." Like your nafs. You know, we're always we're always talking negatively about the nafs and the ego and this. And, but he saw mm-hmm. and tells us that your nafs also has a right upon you. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you need just these periods of just let go, just take it easy, relax. You don't have to be serious mm-hmm. all the time. That actually is part of recovery and part of rejuvenation. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's all right. I wouldn't feel too too badly about it. <laughs> okay, mashallah. Um, <laughs> so the next book is the Ta Tao of Islam. And that's one oh, yeah. I've wanted to read. Yeah, I've wanted to read for so long, but I haven't. And then when I check, like on Amazon, it's so expensive. And then my sister won't let me borrow hers, so I have not. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she won't part with it. Your sister is good people. Your sister knows what's up. I know she does. <laughs> so what is this? I know it's about gender, but what is that book about, and why is it valuable? 
This book is a must read, I think, for Muslims, especially those that are involved in kind of uh, women's rights activism and, and, okay. and all of that. Um, because it's basically a, a metaphysical treatment of gender in Islam uh, using Chinese cosmology, which has a lot of relevant uh, points to bear. Um, basically, the male and the female are, and it uses, uh, Sajiko Murata uses the Jamali and the Jalali. So we have we have the 99 names of God, right? And um, if you divide them, you have Asma'ul Jamal and Asma'ul Jalal, the majestic, the names of majesty and the, and the names of beauty. So when you hear the name Ar-Rahman, for example, the merciful, that is a name of, of beauty. If you hear Al-Qahar, the overcomer, um, that, that, that is a name of majesty. So you have Allah manifesting these dualities in the world uh, through his creative force. So you have majesty and, and beauty. In all of us, so if you, if you look at the yin and the yang, uh, the yin and the yang, the yang has an element of yin inside of it in the middle, and the yin has a, an element of yang in the middle of it. Um, so each one has an element of the other one inside of it, but it predominates in one way. So all of us, men and women, we have elements of both within us. It's just it's a matter of what predominates. For the males, for the men, the element of majesty is dominant, and we have an element of beauty that's hidden inside. For the women, the element of beauty is dominant and they have an element of majesty inside. So there are forces in the world. The masculine and the feminine the feminine are forces in the world. And that's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Quran. That when he created everything in pairs, it's the duality in the world. That everything is in has a male and a female, a positive and a negative, a proton and an electron. It has all of these things. Uh, to, to give to give rise to the world as it is. Mm -hmm. So Sachiko Morata basically brings this metaphysical understanding to bear here. And she, I love the way that she introduces the subject because she says that feminine movements in the West ironically have adopted masculine tendencies mm -hmm. um, in search for their, uh, for their uh, 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 attempt to give, uh, to give uh, voice to the feminine so they actually are silencing themselves without knowing it because they're adopting masculine qualities and attributes right. uh, when they're trying to give voice and air to the feminine mm -hmm. so that's really the gist of the book the book is very thick and a small print dual yeah. columns in each page mm -hmm. um, she brings in a lot of Ibn Arabi's insights into it and she brings in a lot of um, uh, Sufi insight into it, she cites a lot of uh, scholars from Iran because I was she did her PhD in Iran. Okay. Um, so she cites a lot of scholars from there. Um, but it's it's quite a, a wonderful text to go through because it just tells you that the search for equality is actually a misguided call. Hmm. You don't want equality; you want equity. Right. Equality it eliminates the differences. And the thing is, I mean, if you look at the Quran when Allah talks about marriage. He talks about the two, the the coming, coming to gain tranquility with it, that from his signs that he created you in pairs, so you gain tranquility with each other. Because when you're alone, you're actually men and women are both equally deficient, but they're differently mm -hmm. deficient. Mm -hmm. Men have qualities that women have less of, mm -hmm. and women have qualities that men have less of. But when you bring the two together, that's when you get the whole, and that's when you gain tranquility between the two. In matchmaking, 
it's always good to try to, if, if for someone who's in tune with these things and has self-knowledge, mm. to know that some men, for example, might manifest a bit more of the beauty. Well, for that type of a man, you need a woman that manifests a bit more of the majesty mm. for you to have kind of a harmonious relationship. Uh, because if you have two majesties together, you create a volatile situation. It's mm-hmm. two strong personalities in that sense. Mm-hmm. So people that are in tune, and, and you get that through surveys and through questionnaires and things where people that are matchmaking kind of can do. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's really the, the key here is that, and when you recognize that what you're good at and what you manifest more of, if, if that person is a well-matched person to you, they will actually accentuate these things. And there will be times when the masculine, the man, is feeling uh, more the feminine manifesting. Those are the times where the woman is going to manifest more of the majesty Hmm. as opposed to the beauty. Um, And it goes back and forth. Reading this book was really transformative for me personally because it was just kind of a nice appreciation for how Allah created the world Mm -hmm. and how both the men and, and women, the male and the female, can contribute in their own way in a way that will accentuate the beauty of the world uh, without having to trample on each other right right and it seems to kind of go back to what we were saying earlier in talking about your book club like if people feel like if muslims feel that in order to achieve women's rights or even the conversation about women's rights is a secular conversation um, it, you know, it, it's just kind of a shame that we don't reach back to texts like this to even ask the question of, okay, what does Islam say about men and women? What does, what does Islam say about women's rights? Or how should that question even be posed? It's kind of like, I don't know. It's almost as if people don't feel that Islam addresses these issues. So they just adopt the language of the secular discourse. And, uh, well, that goes back to, you know what's interesting about this? I was having a conversation with a friend yesterday about it, and um, it really goes back to our education. It goes back even to the language that we're using. We got into a tangent talking about the importance of, um, I mean, Allah created the world in hierarchies. He tells us that in the Quran, that yeah. some people are over others. Some people have more knowledge. Some people have more wealth. Um, some people are more pious. It's just people are over others. It's everything is in hierarchies. Mm-hmm. Now Allah also tells us that He revealed the Quran in Arabic, and He, I mean, we know that the Quran is revealed in Arabic, and then He emphasizes that the Quran was revealed in Arabic. Mm-hmm. That tells you that there is a significance to language. The thing is, as we in the West discuss Islam, why are we discussing it using these secular ideologies? It's because mm-hmm. we're using English to begin with. We're actually, mm-hmm. if you want to use kind of the language of the colonizer and the colonizer, we're using the language of the colonizers. We're using language that is alien to us by and large. It's English. And so using that language determines Mm. the terms of engagement, determines the trajectory of the conversation and how we're going to talk about these things. And because the Islamic tradition is by and large found in Arabic or Farsi Mm -hmm. or Urdu or... um, uh, These are actually the main uh, three, now Ottoman uh, Ottoman language as well, but Ottoman Turkish, I mean. But it's really just Arabic or Farsi. And if you don't have access to these things, you're going to speak in English. Well, how much English material is available for Muslims that's traditional, that's authentic, that is um, um, uh, sincere to the original text? Very little. So you end up having to just resort to the secular language that you have available to you, which sounds very tantalizing. 
sounds very mm -hmm. attractive because it speaks about it's it's using it's appealing to people's sense of justice but it's using the language of equality which unfortunately if you use that language it ends up oppressing both men and women mm -hmm. because you're now what is the standard if you're going to talk about equality what is the standard the standard is going to be the male standard because in a capitalist yeah. kind of post-industrial revolution society what is uh, what has the most um, value it's the one who gives the most production mm -hmm. well production is going to go back to who can put in more time who has more strength who has more power physically speaking you know it is what it is the male body is physically more capable in that sense at the very least women um, when they get pregnant they're kind of out of uh, uh, their uh, rendered incapacitated for a period of time mm -hmm. from being able to work because now they have to care for the young they have to give birth they have to do these things so mm -hmm. just by default the male is going to be the more productive one well if you're going to look for equality your standard is going to be the male that's oppressive to women you're not looking for equity you're looking for equality now you're going to have to deny parts of the feminine so that you can meet up to the masculine based on a standard that is that doesn't have to be the standard it's mm -hmm. just a standard that we've set for ourselves now, when you have the women having to meet the male standard, well, who's ultimately going to raise the men anyways? Right. It's going to be the women. Now, right. if they're now rendered incapable of being able to take care of the young because they now have to meet a male standard for production, well, the young are going to suffer, and the young includes the men. So now you're oppressing both, hmm. which is a, a sad, unfortunate state of affairs, and that's why I would recommend people go through <laughs> these things a little bit more carefully. So the next two books uh, we wanted to discuss um, A Return to Purity by Imam Al-Ghazali and Misquoting mm. Muhammad by, um, is he Dr. Jonathan Brown? I'm not sure. But yeah, Professor, okay. Jonathan okay. Brown. Professor Jonathan uh, Brown. Okay, mashallah. So what yeah. are those two books about and why would you recommend it? Um, let's start with misquoting Muhammad because that book we did, um, uh, I think it was in 2017, misquoting Muhammad, yeah. So that one by Professor Jonathan Brown, just basically talking, if you look at the way that Muslims now interact with the Sunnah, um, there's a misunderstanding of what the Sunnah is, um, what hadith mean, even just linguistically when you hear hadith, what does it actually mean, um, the derivation of rulings from hadith. Um, how scholars interacted with the hadith. There's a lot of sloppy work where you have just average Muslims now just going online, Google. Uh, you go find yourself a translation of a hadith and you pick it up and you can now willy-nilly just kind of accept or reject on whim. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't have the educational background and the structure for how to interact with these things, the only thing you have is whim. You mm -hmm. like it, you don't like it, you like how it sounds. So you take it or you drop it, however you wish. Right. Um, so this book by Professor Jonathan Brown is basically a, a good premiere on what does it mean to interact with the hadith, what the hadith represents, um, how hadiths were understood traditionally and classically by scholars. Um, so I, I, I recommend if, for those in the book club, they can review the recording for the webinar because we have all the recordings for the webinars uploaded. Um, or just pick up the book and read it because it will enlighten you into how uh, you need to interact with these things. It is not enough, for example, for someone to tell you that there is a hadith in Bukhari and therefore you need to do something. Hmm. Um, this is where the issue of schools of law come in. 
Right. Imam Malik had, um, I believe it was, oh, I can't remember. Ibn Wahab, I believe, was the one who came to Imam Malik. And um, he said uh, bef uh, before coming to Imam Malik, he had studied so much hadith that he thought he was becoming misguided and he was going to lose his faith. Hmm, um, and so he, he met Imam Malik and Imam Malik ta uh, taught him which ha what the hadith actually mean, um, how to apply the hadith, when to apply the hadith, which hadith are to be applied, which ones are not to be applied. And so he said, had it not been for Malik, I would have, I would have perished. Akhtartu min al-hadith, hatta dalalt, walawla Malik halakt. I've, I've done so much hadith to the degree where I've become misguided and had it not been for Malik, I would have, been, I would have perished. Wow. So fiqh is another realm that people need to kind of appreciate. That it's not enough for you to just look up a hadith, misunderstand it, and you're looking at it in, a, in an English translation. God knows if this translation is even accredited or not, mm -hmm. and whether that translation really encompasses the meanings of the hadith and the implications that it has, and whether the hadith itself is to be applied or not. Right. And that's where you need to follow a school of law so that you have some consistency and coherence to your application of these things. Mm -hmm. So that's why that, that book is important by Professor Brown. A Return of Purity to Creed in Creed is um, Imam al-Ghazali's Al-Iqtisat fil Atiqad, which is a book that's just, um, um, you know, there are a lot of discussions on Aqidah now and mm -hmm. what uh, a Muslim must believe and uh, must not believe and what they can reject and accept. And Imam al-Ghazali's position on this was that um, it's it's in the name it's it's to not do too much of aqidah aqidah is a very simple thing in right. islam la ilaha illallah muhammad rasulullah is not a complicated proposition mm -hmm. and we have complicated nowadays especially in the current realm of this interaction uh between science and religion which is why i put this text in in this year's book list um as a as a start to the following books on, that all deal with the relationship between science and religion Mm. Um, there are a lot of things in science that are proposed as quote unquote true, but we don't, as scientists, when we speak about true, we're not actually saying this is a, uh, an unequivocal, uh, categorical truth. We're just talking about things that we believe with degrees of certainty about them, as Richard Feynman would put it. Mm. Um, some things we have some evidence for based on that evidence. So far, we believe this. Otherwise, we believe this other thing. And it's just degrees of belief about something. We don't have categorical we don't believe in anything in science. We just accept evidence as it is and the, where it points to. And we can change our minds, uh, you know, with where the evidence takes us. Um, so this book is important just to kind of highlight what do you need to believe as a Muslim mm -hmm. and how do you need to interact with Aqidah, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. A lot of us engage in discussions that actually can lead down dangerous grounds for belief where we don't even need to engage in these discussions. They don't benefit you anything. Um, the Prophet ﷺ tells us that um, the, it's uh, asking too many questions and delving into too many details about these matters is actually mm -hmm. what caused Bani Israel to perish mm -hmm. and to be destroyed. So this is just about returning to the purity of what does it mean to be a Muslim, the basic beliefs, and the establishment of those beliefs. Why do we believe in these things? Because that's also another important thing. It's not enough in this day and age with all this mass education and mass literacy mm -hmm. and people going to college to just state simply, la ilaha illallah, and that's it, and I believe in this because Allah said so, when you're interacting with non-Muslims. Yes, yeah. you believe in this because Allah said so, but why do you believe Allah said this, and why do you believe in Allah in the first place, and what are what are the what is the rational case for you to establish these things, knowing that you establishing that rational case is not a substitution 
to the fitrah, to the basic belief that everybody has in their heart, and we just, to some degree or another, happen to just cover it over. Hmm. Um, so that's that's why I put that book in this particular placement for this year. Okay, mashallah. And I know that with some, especially with Akira, can be, like you said, there are some scholars who would advise not even to go too much into depth with Akira. Would you say that this is a kind of book that someone um, can pick up as their first book of Akira, or is it for a bit more of an advanced reader? Um, I wouldn't start with this one, okay. but it, I think it's definitely one of the the first kind of couple of books that one should pick up. I I I, I the reason I also put it this year is because Sheikh uh, Dr. Abdullah bin Hamid uh, Ali. Um, uh, okay. translated it and this is the translation that I'm actually putting in okay. and I like his translations because they're accessible they're very accessible it's a new translation that just came out uh-huh, okay. uh, you can pick it up from Lampos Productions mm-hmm. uh, so I highly recommend people pick that up it's accessible translation not convoluted I like his translations generally um, he's got the other one with the attributes of God uh, by Imam Nadozi mm-hmm. So um, I'd say pick it up because it's kind of like a, I like Imam al-Ghazali sex because it's almost like a check. You know, when you get too far mm. and too deep into something that you may, maybe you just shouldn't be wasting your time on, he just reminds you of, just get back to basics. Okay. You don't need to go into all these complicated things. Mm-hmm. Theology is a realm that is just for a few people in the Muslim community to deal with. Mm-hmm. It is not for everyone. And it is actually considered one of the highest um, disciplines. It's, it requires a mastery of different fields of knowledge um, that people may either not have the intellectual aptitude for, or more often, it's actually just don't have the time. Right. You know, and so people should focus on their own kind of specialties. And this is an area where Imam Ghazali is just reminding the reader, just this is the basics that you need to know. Mm-hmm. And it's actually part of uh, it's uh, part of his ihya. Mm-hmm. the revocation of Islamic sciences. So it's taken from that text um, just to get people back to basic practice and just to purification of their own souls. Okay, alhamdulillah. So inshallah, those are the the five books you wanted to go through. And then just a couple of other questions I wanted to ask you. So yeah. in general, what is your take on personal development books? Personal development books are great. I think that we need to um, do more of them. Just remember, I would always, any books that are written by Mm non-Muslims from a secular perspective, I would always combine it with reading, um, uh, with uh, making sure that you have a daily kind of portion of Iman vitamins, as Imam Zaid calls them. Mm -hmm. You need to continue reciting the Quran. You need to continue reading our scholarly texts that remind you about the reality of the ego, the nafs, and where it can take you. Because personal development books written by non-Muslims, when you don't have that perspective from uh, the Islamic perspective, it's really an, an area where you can easily fall into uh, stroking the ego yeah. and just uh, getting your ego kind of amped up and, and getting to think too much of yourself. So you should always have a, a little bit of a temperance, temperate mm-hmm. with reading some of our traditional scholarly works on the nafs Mm -hmm. so that you don't forget the reality of what a human being is. But I I say definitely, I mean, it's, um, I benefit from them Mm -hmm. greatly. Um, One of my favorite ones is the seven habits of highly effective people. 
Okay. And one of the points that um, uh, that uh, was mentioned in it uh, by Stephen Covey is um, one of the habits is that we focus on what, where we have a circle of influence versus a circle of concern. Mm, the circle okay, of influence are things that you have immediate um, impact on. So, mm-hmm. for example, uh, in politics, you have a you have an impact on local politics, your vicinity, right. your, municipal, your municipality, your specific city. But we have people focused on the federal level, on the grand scheme of things, where things don't really have a direct impact on you, and they forget about their local stuff. Then nobody goes to the local elections. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have you have people that are concerned about Muslims, ha- what ha- what's happening with Muslims all over the globe, which mm-hmm. is great, and they're talking about it and spending a lot of time on it. But then when it comes to their own families, their own spouses, their own children, they can't tell you the first thing about what's happened mm-hmm. over the past week. Right. So this is kind of a flipping off, you know, you have a circle of, influence, circle of influence, circle of concern. Mm-hmm. So when I get people asking me, how are you able to do so many things and how come you're productive? Mm-hmm. It's because I just know where I need to direct my energies. And that's mm-hmm. something that I picked up from Stephen Covey. So I highly recommend going through these things, but also at the same time, give yourself a daily portion of, you should always have a daily quota of Quran recitation, but also of just reciting, uh, reading some sunnah, reading some sirah, reading some of the things that our Muslim scholars have written, especially about the nafs. Mm -hmm. How often do you read the Quran and how much or how much would you suggest someone reading the Quran um, like every day, how much should they read? I'm a big fan of the, um, the Moroccan method that they do in fast, which is they do a hizb, so half a juz, in the, which is about 10 pages. They do that after subah in the morning, mm. and then they do another hizb after maghrib uh, in the evening. And that way they do a juz every day. And so they do a khatim of the Quran once a month, every month, mm, outside of Ramadan. Mm-hmm. So if you're not able to do that, at the very least, you can do a hizb every day. So you can do five pages in the morning and five pages in the evening. And a hizb in Arabic, Hizb is the amount of water that you need to sustain life in a desert for a day. Wow, and the dunya is really a spiritual desert. So I would recommend do five pages in the morning, five pages in the evening at minimum. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if you're not someone who regularly recites and you're about to pick that up. Don't overwhelm yourself. The Prophet ﷺ said, mm-hmm. Delve into this religion gently. So start off with five pages in the morning, five pages in the evening. We all have that time. Mm-hmm. Nobody can say that they don't have time. Alhamdulillah, I'm busy, but I find the time to do what I need to do. Mm-hmm. So I'd re- I definitely recommend, don't leave the Quran just till Ramadan. You need to have a daily allotment, a daily portion, a commitment. Look at all the time that you spend. And subhanAllah, now with the iPhone um, telling you or the, these different phones telling you how much time you spend on social media huh. and right. how much screen time you're spending, you can easily take 15 minutes out of your day to to the word for the words of Allah. Mm-hmm. Um we waste a lot of time, and so there's actually no excuse. You have to let yourself know, your nafs know, there is no excuse. It's just spiritual slothness, just being spiritually lazy. Mm-hmm. So make a commitment, especially in the morning. You're going to find it a lot easier to do it in the morning than in the evening. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'd recommend just do it all in the morning if you can. Mm-hmm. But um, definitely get those, get some pages recited in the morning and make it a daily habit. Okay, mashallah. And then in a more general sense, I think that's already a good sort of um, bit of advice. In a more general sense, what do you suggest to those who want to become readers? They want to read more books. How do they make it a habit? And then 
how did they even choose what to read? Like, alhamdulillah, you have these great books that you're reading um, in the in the book club. How do people even go about choosing what to read and then making it a habit? Um, so if you're not a reader to begin with, I would say, and you have a hard time with reading, first of all, you have to um, adopt the attitude of, I want to become a reader. I've got some people that tell me, I'm just not a reader. I can't read. If, you, if you're going to have that attitude, you'll never be able to read. So you have to adopt the attitude, have a change of mind and an attitude that I want to become a reader. Once you do that, I sit down for like, let's start in small portions. Do 20 minutes at a time, read a bit, and leave the book in an exposed place so that with a bookmark. As you read, I'd recommend take a pen. Don't be shy. Take a pen. And write in the margins any thoughts that you have when you're reading a particular passage so that way you're actively engaging with the book so that you can make it something of a, an activity of a conversation with the author. Um, and as and dog ear, if you need to, dog ear or bookmark pages that you really like, highlights, passages that really stand out to you. Mm -hmm. um, but start with small books and build up. Just like anything, you know, when you go and, and okay. do um, any activity that you're not used to, they always tell you start small, start slow and build up to the point where you finally will find yourself picking up books that are five, 600 pages long, and it will just, you'll browse, you'll, you'll breeze through them with no problem. Um, so that's kind of what I'll begin with. And um, if you want to supplement that reading with something else, you find yourself wanting more and you just don't have the time uh, as a substitute to it, but I wouldn't say that make this as a primary thing, audiobooks, they're mm -hmm. really good. Um, so you can listen to them while you're driving or while you're on the transport, going to work, going to mm -hmm. school. You can listen to audiobooks. Uh, it's easy to get distracted. The problem with audiobooks is the, it's easy to get distracted. Yeah. So you find yourself looking around and, and so, oh, I got to rewind and do this. So it's better for you to sit down in a quiet place and actually read something and make, make, make an activity out of it. You know, make it a thing. It's like, all right, I'm going to go and have coffee. I'm going to sit down in the coffee shop and I'm just going to and give yourself a quota. I'm going to read 10 pages. It's actually a lot easier for you when you give yourself a quota to get through that quota. But if you just give an open-ended things like, I have this book that's 150 pages, and I'm just going to read whatever. You mm -hmm. might end up reading half a page. But if you tell yourself, let's break it down. I want to read a book a month, and this book is 300 pages, okay. then I'm going to read 10 pages a day. Mm -hmm. That's actually now a doable thing, 10 pages a day. Or if it's 12 chapters, um, I'm going to read a chapter every day. Whatever, you know, just pick yourself and give yourself a time when you know that this is a time you can actually sit down and read. I would pick a time when you're mentally um, uh, present. So if you are someone who is more present in the morning, read in the morning. If you're more present in the evening, read in the evening. Um, and just incorporate it into your lifestyle that you are not going to get out of the day. You're not going to finish your day. You're not going to go to bed until you've done some reading of some sort. Mm -hmm. Even if you're absolutely exhausted, read a page. At least it's, it's part of your routine. Right. Right. Mashallah. Those are really good tips. Um, Jazakallah Khai, thank you for being on the podcast, um, Sidi Muhammad Jilan. Do you teach classes oh, anywhere? Is there anywhere people can um, study with you? Um, so there is, uh, obviously we've talked about it enough, uh, the Andalus Book Club. Mm -hmm. So that's a monthly thing that I do for two hours or so with the members. Yeah. And the conversation, yeah, it does center around the particular book, but it does go off onto other relevant tangents from there. Uh, the other thing is uh, we're looking, if for those of you who are going to be in Brisbane, 
Uh, we're looking at potentially starting something in April. It's going to be a weekly thing, but there's more details to come with that. Okay. Those who are in Sydney, I'm with uh, Mizan Avenue. Um, so there are uh, intensive retreats that are being planned. Um, just waiting for them to get back to me with when and where. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, I'm still kind of toying with the idea of doing an online course. Um, this is going to be to be announced uh, in the near future, inshallah, but that, that's just still in the in the works. So we'll let you okay. know. Okay, alhamdulillah. So again, um, Muhammad Jilan, his website blog is called endalusonline.org. You can go on the iTunes podcast app and find his podcast. Um, just type in Muhammad Jilan, and you can also find him on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you all for tuning in, and take care. Assalamu alaikum.